They'd reached the edge of the known world. In the surrounding plains and valleys were a series of Celtic tribes, and beyond that the mythic Hyperboreans who called the far north home. But the general wasn't interested in them or their homelands. His sole focus was Italy, which was why he and his troops were making the daunting and treacherous journey through the Alps in order to sack Rome, the capital of the Roman Republic. When they departed from the port city of Saguntum in Hispania, present-day Spain, three months prior, their supplies had been ample. Now their food was dwindling, and the soldiers, desperate for anything, began scooping up the freshly fallen snow and topping it with wild berries. While this provided little nourishment or nutritional value, it did for a time put a halt to the collective growling of the army's stomachs. Though the general wanted what was best for his men, he wasn't about to turn back now, not when they'd made it this far. Besides, he had a promise to keep, not just to them, but to his father, to whom he'd sworn never to be a friend or ally of Rome. To return home now surely meant defeat, and he'd be labeled a coward for all eternity. This was the scene that played out from June through October of 218 BC, when Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca led his troops through the Alps in northern Italy toward Rome during the Second Punic War. A fight for dominance over the Mediterranean between the Roman Republic and Carthage, a former Phoenician stronghold, Hannibal is often quoted as the one man whom Rome feared, and was also the only one capable of nearly sacking its capital. But what made his military feats and achievements so remarkable? Who was he really beneath the rough-and-tough exterior? And why is he remembered as being one of the greatest tacticians in history? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Today, the name Hannibal conjures up images of a cunning, conniving cannibal and former psychologist, thanks to the book and its successive film adaptation, Silence of the Lambs. But one of the primary antagonists, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, shares more than a name with the subject of this week's episode. He's crafty, a master strategist in his own right, as he manipulates all those who fall into his orbit with a series of complex mind games. It's quite possible that author Thomas Harris was inspired in part by the famed Carthaginian general while creating the frightening yet deliciously wicked Dr. Lecter. But long before he was even a concept, the name Hannibal was immortalized in the annals of history for his military might and power. The man who would one day be known as Hannibal was born Hannibal Barak in Carthage in what's now Tunisia in 247 BC. From the start, it seemed that the young Hannibal was destined to become one of the leading military figures in history. His father, Homilcart, known better in the West as Hamilcar, was a leading commander of the Carthaginian army, while his uncle on his mother's side, Azrobaal, or Hasdrubal the Fair, was a renowned politician who also served as commander. The world into which Hannibal was born was extremely volatile, to say the least, for it was at this time that the Roman Republic fully emerged onto the world stage, asserting its dominance over the Italian peninsula, and showing no signs of stopping within those borders alone. Seeing the rise of Rome as a threat to their imperial and colonial interests, Carthage rose up against her in a series of battles and skirmishes known as the Punic Wars, in which the two fought for power and control over the Mediterranean. The Punic Wars began nearly twenty years before Hannibal was even born. Picture it, Sicily, 264 BC, to borrow words from TV's golden girl Sophia Petrillo, when Roman naval forces invaded the island, despite Carthage claiming ownership over it. At the time, Carthage boasted the most powerful maritime empire, and was the preeminent force and dominant imperial power in the western half of the Mediterranean. But during this period, Rome was rising from a sleepy, swampy backwater in central Italy to the formidable foe she would one day become. Having conquered the whole of the Italian peninsula, they soon set their sights on Sicily, and while they possessed a powerful army, their navy was weak in comparison with that of Carthage. For twenty-three years, the two powers duked it out on both land and sea, resulting in major casualties on both sides of the conflict. 
In the end, however, Rome emerged victorious, successfully annexing Sicily as a Roman province in 241 BC. Per the agreements of a treaty signed by the two nations, Carthage was forced to pay large war reparations to Rome, and was further devastated by a significant, yet unsuccessful, mutiny within her government known as the Mercenary War. It was in this hostile environment that the young Hannibal was born, raised, and came of age. Determined to turn his country's as well as his family's luck around, his father, Hamilcar, launched a campaign to subjugate the Celtic tribes of Iberia, present-day Portugal and Spain. So dire was the situation in Carthage following the first Punic and Mercenary Wars, however, that there wasn't even a navy in which to transport the troops by sea. Instead, Hamilcar led his forces west through Morocco towards what was then referred to as the Pillars of Hercules, now known as the Strait of Gibraltar, with nine-year-old Hannibal in tow. According to the ancient Greek historian Polybius, the young Hannibal begged his father to take him on an overseas war, to which the commander eventually acquiesced. Legend has it that Hamilcar took his son to a sacrificial chamber in a nearby temple, and, over an offering to the gods, made him solemnly swear to never be a friend to Rome. Upon giving his father his word, he was whisked away to Spain and into the throes of war. While the veracity of this event remains unclear, Hannibal's hatred for Rome is a characteristic commonly attributed to him through various contemporary accounts by both Greek and Roman historians. Another source claims that the child told his father that, quote, as soon as age will permit, I will use fire and steel to arrest the destiny of Rome, unquote. Regardless of which is true, he would, at the age of 26, uphold his promise to his father, and in the process become a towering figure not just in the ancient world, but for all time. At the age of 18, Hannibal lost his father, Hamilcar, in battle during the conquest of Hispania when he drowned in a river. Hannibal's uncle, Hasdrubal the Fair, therefore assumed command of the Carthaginian forces. It was at this time that the teen was officially indoctrinated into the scourges of war, serving as officer under his uncle. Over the next eight years, Hasdrubal would consolidate Carthaginian power over Iberia through diplomatic relations with the various tribes who lived there, and even signed a treaty with Rome promising that Carthage would not expand north past the Ebro River in northern Hispania, so long as the Romans didn't expand south of it. So it was that much of Hispania fell to the Carthaginians, but a change loomed on the horizon. In 221 BC, Hasdrubal was assassinated, and the weight of responsibility over the Carthaginian army fell onto Hannibal's shoulders. The newly appointed commander-in-chief, now 26 years old, was described by the Roman historian Livy as follows. No sooner had he arrived, the old soldiers fancied they saw Hamilcar in his youth given back to them. The same bright look, the same fire in his eye, the same trick of countenance and features. Never was one in the same spirit more skillful to meet opposition, to obey, or to command. This recollection would prove to be quite prophetic, for it not only reveals the striking resemblance Hannibal bore with his father, but a prediction of the leading military figure he was destined to become. As it turned out, he wouldn't have to wait very long to prove himself. For two years following his appointment as commander-in-chief, he finished what his father and uncle had started. Virtually sweeping through Hispania, all the while remaining south of the Ebro as promised in the aforementioned treaty, he turned homeward in 219 BC with many spoils, only to be attacked by a coalition of Celtic tribes led by one Carpetani in the region of the Tagus River. It was here that Hannibal won his first major battle, known as the Battle of the Tagus, in which his tactical skills led the Carthaginians to a swift victory. For the first time since the First Punic War, Carthage was once again on the rise. 
But the Romans, in one of the few instances in their long history, were afraid. Seeing Hannibal's decisive victories in Hispania, Roman leaders feared Hannibal's growing strength as well as his rapidly expanding empire, which they felt threatened their own imperialistic ambitions. In a panic, they quickly forged an alliance with the city of Saguntum on the east coast of Hispania, a location south of the Ebro River, and claimed it as a Roman protectorate. Seeing this act as a breach of the treaty his uncle had signed several years before, Hannibal led his forces to Saguntum to attack, laying siege to the city and completely leveling it until it fell eight months later. In the aftermath, he sent the spoils back to Carthage, which gained him a great deal of support from the Carthaginian government. In Rome, however, the Senate was called to order, and, though they technically been the ones to breach the treaty, sent a dispatch to Carthage to figure out if Hannibal had acted on his own accord or on orders from the government. The Carthaginian Senate countered with a legal argument, noting that neither they nor Rome had officially ratified said treaty, and therefore no violation had been made. Outraged, Roman Senator Quintus Fabius Maximus Verucosus, who led the delegation, demanded that Carthage choose between waging war or keeping peace with Rome. Carthage, however, posed the question back at him, saying that Rome should choose. Needless to say, Fabius chose war, triggering what would eventually become known as the Second Punic War. What no one knew or realized at the time was that Hannibal had been planning to invade Rome prior to their breach of the treaty. Their alliance with Saguntum, though, was just the push he needed to carry out his plan. Thus, in late spring of 218 BC, he and his forces departed from Carthadasht, literally New Carthage in Punic, what's now the city of Cartagena in Spain, and began making the 1,041-mile, or 1,675-kilometer, trek to the capital of the Roman Republic. He had at his disposal some 90,000 foot soldiers, 12,000 cavalry troops, and, perhaps most impressive, 38 war elephants of the now-extinct North African variety, a species that was the only domesticated elephant in Africa. But the journey wasn't an easy one. For starters, Hannibal and his troops had to cross not one, but two mountain ranges, the Pyrenees that form the natural border between what's now Spain and France, and the Alps in northern Italy. Despite the fact that it was late spring when they set out, both ranges are notoriously cold all year round due to their high altitudes. In addition, in the foothills of the Pyrenees, the Carthaginian forces were met with opposition from a confederation of Celtic and Basque tribes. Using a mixture of clever tactics and a refusal to surrender, Hannibal was able to successfully subdue the tribes and even left a detachment of 20,000 troops to garrison the newly acquired territory. But he wasn't always so cruel and relentless, especially to those under his command. While crossing the Pyrenees proper, he released some 11,000 Iberian soldiers who were reluctant to leave their homeland. Thus he entered Gaul, present-day France, with 40,000 foot soldiers and the self-same 12,000 cavalry troops. In Gaul, Hannibal was met with far less violent opposition. While the Gaulish chieftains were by no means pleased to see an invasion force passing through their territory and wished to stop them from pressing on, the Carthaginian general placated most of them and outmaneuvered the rest, allowing him to continue on his way. By September that same year, Hannibal had arrived at the Rhone River along the western foothills of the Alps. By then, his army numbered 38,000 foot soldiers, 8,000 cavalry, and all 38 of his war elephants. But their greatest trials and tribulations lay ahead. Just prior to making the treacherous journey through the Alps, a Roman force, which had been stationed along the Mediterranean coast, advanced on the Carthaginians, forcing the latter to turn inland up the Rhone River Valley. From there, Hannibal led his men into the Alps, a dangerous passage the exact route of which remains the subject of speculation to this day. Some historians favor a southern route through a tributary of the Rhone. Others believe that they may have entered the mountain range further north, passing within sight of the Matterhorn in what's now Switzerland. Regardless of which path they took, they faced danger and obstacles at every turn. Freezing cold conditions, massive rock slides, and depleted supplies caused major losses for the Carthaginian forces. Now I know what you're thinking. 
If he knew how dangerous it was to traverse one of the largest mountain chains in Europe, then why go that way? Well, as previously stated, Hannibal to the present era is known as one of the greatest military tacticians of all time. This was due in large part to the teachings of his Greek tutors as a youth, as well as the experience he'd gained in war alongside his father. In addition, the events of the First Punic War served as a lesson in that an attempt at sacking Rome by sea or the coast had proven ineffective. Therefore, Hannibal's strategy was to take a northern approach to Italy and subduing allied Roman-controlled city-states in the northern part of the peninsula before advancing into the capital herself. It was a difficult task, to say the least, and was easily the most ambitious military tactic ever undertaken in the Mediterranean up to that point, one that involved the mobilization of anywhere between 60,000 to 100,000 troops and the training of a war elephant corps. Needless to say, his army incurred several losses in the Alps, but nevertheless he pressed on, finally arriving in Roman territory in November of that year. Hannibal's arrival in northern Italy shocked the Romans, who, not expecting the general to make the difficult passage through such rugged terrain, were prepared to fight the conflict back on the Iberian Peninsula. With quick thinking and swift action, Publius Cornelius Scipio, the consul in charge of a Roman force sent to intercept their adversaries, transported the Roman army back to Italy to meet the invading Carthaginians at the Po Valley. Here, in the Battle of Ticinus, Hannibal won a minor victory against Scipio's men thanks to his superior cavalry, driving the Romans out of the Lombardy region. This, in turn, caught the attention of the local Gaul and Ligurian tribes, who ended up siding with the Carthaginian victors. Their support bolstered Hannibal's army back up to some 40,000 men. Scipio, who was severely injured in the skirmish, was saved only by the bravery of his son, who rode back into battle to rescue his father. Retreating across the nearby Trebia River, Scipio's force, largely unscathed, regrouped at Placentia, now Piacenza, and awaited reinforcements. Even before word of the Carthaginian victory at Ticinus had reached Rome, the Senate had ordered one consul Tiberius Sempronius Longus to order his army, which was stationed in Sicily, back to the Italian mainland to meet with Scipio's men in the Po Valley, so that they could tackle the enemy head-on. But Hannibal, ever the master tactician, had moved his men to the main road leading to Placentia, meaning that Sempronius would have no choice but to march to Scipio's camp. From there, the Carthaginians captured the town of Clastidium, and, at long last, were able to fully resupply their forces. While they were busy doing that, however, Sempronius's troops slipped around Hannibal's flank and successfully merged with Scipio's men at Placentia. On December 22nd or 23rd, 218 BC, the Battle of Trebia took place on the floodplain of the west bank of the Trebia River, resulting in a decisive victory for the Carthaginians when Hannibal, after exhausting the Roman infantry, cut them down in a surprise attack and ambush from the flanks. That winter, Hannibal's troops were quartered with their Gaul allies, despite the fact that their support had heavily waned. Come the spring of 217 BC, the Carthaginians ventured south to seek a better base of operations. Intercepting their movements, consuls Gaius Flaminius and Gnaeus Servilius believed that the enemy was advancing to Rome in an attempt to sack her. As such, they sent their armies to block the eastern and western routes into the city. Upon learning this, Hannibal decided on the only remaining route to central Italy, at the mouth of the Arno River in Tuscany. Essentially a giant marsh at the time, it was a difficult passage to be sure, but it was otherwise the quickest way to the middle of the country. Historic records from the period tell how Hannibal and his men traveled, quote, through a land that was underwater, unquote, for four days and three nights, all the while suffering from fatigue and lack of sleep. From there they pushed through two of the three Apennine mountain ranges, as well as the Arno lowlands, on the other side, and were met with no resistance, though Hannibal lost his right eye to conjunctivitis, as well as a large part of his army to the swampy terrain. 
During this time, Gaius Flaminius was sent to the Etruria region, parts of present-day Tuscany, Lazio, and Umbria, to protect it from the Carthaginian advance. Hannibal devised a plan in which he'd lay waste to the area, anticipating that Flaminius would pursue him, thus presenting him the opportunity to attack the Roman forces in what would be the first turning movement in military history. A turning movement, for those unfamiliar with the term, is a military tactic in which the attacking force seeks to avoid the enemy's chief defensive positions by seizing objectives behind the enemy's current position, causing the enemy to move out of their current position or divert their forces to meet the threat. Leading his men to the Etrurian uplands, Hannibal's strategy worked, with Flaminius trailing in hot pursuit before the latter was caught in a narrow pass on the shores of Lake Trasimene. In a series of swift strokes, the Carthaginians defeated the Romans in the lake itself, or on the surrounding slopes, resulting in the most devastating ambush in Roman history until the Battle of Carai against the Parthian Empire in 53 BC. Gaius Flaminius himself was among the dead, and with no other opposition standing in his way, Hannibal realized that he could now easily reach Rome. But there was just one problem. Powerful and skilled though the Carthaginian army was, they lacked one crucial weapon that would allow them to swiftly and decisively take the capital of the Roman Republic. Siege engines. Whether immobile to attack from a distance or wheeled with battering rams to break through walls and fortifications, they were a commonly used war machine in antiquity. Without them, Hannibal realized that the only way he could hope to secure the capital was to boast of his victory throughout central and southern Italy and encourage an open revolt against the sovereign power. But the Romans were ready for anything. In light of the heavy losses incurred at the Battle of Lake Trasimene, they appointed Quintus Fabius Maximus Verucosus as dictator. The very same Fabius who led the delegation to Carthage just before the Second Punic War, he did away with Roman military tradition, choosing instead to adopt an entirely new strategy that now bears his name. The Fabius strategy, in short, does away with frontal assaults and pitched battles in favor of psychological warfare, such as placing armies within the enemy's vicinity to monitor and limit their movements, thus putting the enemy under a great deal of fear, mental duress, and pressure. But this new tactic proved unpopular with the Roman masses, who felt it an act of cowardice. As it was, Hannibal had already laid waste to the Apulia region and pressed on to Samnium and Campania in the hopes that the devastation he wrought would draw Fabius and his men into the fray. But the dictator refused to cave, all the while keeping a close watch on the Carthaginians' path of destruction. With winter fast approaching, Hannibal began looking for a place in which his forces could rest comfortably. But Fabius had blocked all passes out of Campania. In yet another flash of tactical genius, Hannibal tricked the Romans into thinking that his army would retreat into some nearby woods. The Romans took the bait and followed in hot pursuit, only to have the Carthaginians bound back to the pass unopposed, retreating back to the safety of the Apulia region. This setback was a crushing blow for Fabius and cost him much of his prestige, leading to his being ousted as dictator after serving for only a few months. In the spring of 216 BC, the Carthaginian army roared back to life by taking a large supply depot in the town of Cannae on the Apulian plain. In doing so, Hannibal had placed himself between the Romans and one of their biggest and most crucial supply sources. In the meantime, the Romans too were regrouping. With 216 BC being a year to elect new consuls, the Senate appointed Lucius Aemilius Paulus and Gaius Terentius Varro as heads of the Roman army. In doing so, they also greatly expanded said army to a whopping 50,000 to 80,000 soldiers, the largest they'd ever assembled up to that point. The hope was to achieve victory through strength in numbers and skill. With newfound resolve, they marched toward Apulia, where they found Hannibal and his men camped on the left bank of the Aufidus River. Here the two Roman factions were merged into one, with each consul in command on alternating days. Varro commanded on the first day, while Paulus served on the second, and so on. Of the two, however, Varro felt he was the more determined to defeat Hannibal, and the Carthaginian general decided to capitalize on this hubris. Using an envelopment technique, 
Hannibal drew his least reliable foot soldiers into a semicircle flanked by cavalry on the outside, or wings. The Roman forces pushed through the quote-unquote weak center, but the cavalry closed in on them, resulting in the near-total devastation of the enemy. It's believed that upwards of 50,000 to 70,000 Roman troops lost their lives that day, including Paulus, making it one of the worst defeats in Roman history, as well as one of the bloodiest battles in all of history. Following the Battle of Cannae, the Romans were naturally very hesitant to face Hannibal head-on. They chose, instead, to revert to the Fabius strategy, opting to weaken him through psychological warfare. But as it turned out, Hannibal wouldn't fight any more major battles in Italy for the duration of the Second Punic War, for reasons that are somewhat unclear. The most prevalent theory, however, is that a lack of support and commitment from Carthage herself, a lack of money, manpower, and material, specifically the aforementioned siege engines, is the primary reason why he was never able to capture Rome. But his victory at the Battle of Cannae won him support from throughout Italy, many of whom would join him in his later campaigns in his native North Africa. Not only that, but his actions sparked a revolution of sorts as several states under Roman rule began revolting against the Republic. The Greek cities of Sicily rose up in opposition to Rome. So too did King Philip V of Macedonia. As such, the war in Italy settled into a strategic stalemate. Realizing that the only way Rome would defeat Hannibal was through the Fabius strategy, they launched several small-scale attacks on his men, exhausting them and causing dissension among his ranks. Though he would go on to win several more victories, a combination of lack of sufficient support from his Italian allies, as well as from Carthage herself, led him to return home for good in 203 BC, after 15 years of fighting. Once back in Carthage, he was employed to fight the Romans on North African soil as a Roman general, Scipio Africanus, led an invasion force in an attempt to take the city. Though Hannibal fought valiantly in the Battle of Zama in present-day Tunisia, he was ultimately defeated by Africanus. He'd never see the battlefield again. At 46 years of age following the Battle of Zama, Hannibal became a Carthaginian statesman and led several reforms within her government, including reducing the power of her oligarchy. But then, in 195 BC, he was accused by the Romans of conspiring with the Greek Seleucid Empire in Western Asia to overtake and conquer Rome. As tensions flared, he flew into exile, first to Bithynia in present-day Turkey, and then to Armenia. Returning to the Libisa region of Bithynia in 185 BC, he died there two years later. So ended the life of one of the greatest military geniuses in all of human history, as an exile, a stranger in a strange land, but one whose reputation would live on forever. To this day, the name Hannibal suggests power, strength, and fortitude. It's a name that calls to mind military strategy, tactics, and victories. In his wondrous life, he traversed some of the most dangerous and treacherous parts of the Mediterranean, led his armies into battle against a nation that would one day conquer much of the known world, and did it all with a great deal of tact, skill, and bravery. Few men in history can claim such greatness and achievements, but, then again, seldom has history produced such larger-than-life figures like the legendary Hannibal Barca. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening and for joining me on this journey through the life of one of history's most amazing figures. If you like history and wish to support me to ensure future quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. By visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. You can also follow me on Instagram at historylovescompany. That's history underscore loves underscore company. Don't forget to tune in next Thursday when we'll be exploring a city of temples in Southeast Asia right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.